Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. The book of Daniel is really split into kind of two sections, and they and these both bleed into each other a little bit, but really the sections are that there's Daniel the man, who was who was Daniel? What was he all about? Um, what was his situation? What did he do? What is his character? That's the big thing, the character of Daniel, Daniel the man. And that takes us generally through chapters one through six. And then we get into a, kind of a different portion of Daniel or a different focus, where it's really more focused on Daniel as the prophet, the one who is telling about things that will happen in the future. Now, there are some prophetic things even within these first two chapters, so we will run into a couple of those uh, details um, during this first portion of the first three weeks, but the primary focus is on the character of Daniel. Um, A little bit of backdrop, Daniel, and and go ahead and get out your first handout here, which says the, the rulers and prophets of Daniel's time. Sorry, somebody had a cute bird sound phone ring. <laughs> it wasn't you, of course. Yeah. Actually, kind of like that. It's kind of a neat, neat ringtone. Um, I'm, th- I'm already thinking I would like that ringtone. Um, anyhow, and you'll see right here in the middle. This is uh, this is this is a, a really great one. You should hold on to these, by the way, for the duration of the study. Um, and right there in the middle, it says Judah's last kings. And then it says 70-year Jewish captivity. Does everybody see that? Daniel's life pretty much is, the, is a kind of a summation of the 70-year Jewish captivity. Um, the last book that we studied on Wednesday was with Esther. And Esther was what we call a, a post-captivity book. It was a book that was written during the time of the Medo-Persians. This was after um, Israel had been given permission, Israel and Judah had been given permission to go back into the promised land. But Daniel is specifically about this whole time that they're away. And I'll get into all these kinds of situations about why that is. But as far as understanding the the general timeline, um, Daniel is pretty much 605 B.C., to 536 BC. So this is 600 years before Christ. So 605 BC to 536. And the whole book covers about 70 years of of Daniel's life. He's by some estimates about 17 years old when he when he begins um, as far as he's been taken as a captive and then he's around 90 when the book is done. So let's go ahead and uh, pray real quick, and then we'll jump into all kinds of details. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, and we thank you so much for your love for us, uh, that, that we have this word to give us strength, Lord, and to encourage us and to help us as we walk 
uh, the narrow path of following Christ. I pray for all these here and those listening, Lord, that you would speak to them by your Holy Spirit, that you would have a word for them, a direction, um, a cause for peace or celebration, Lord, or sometimes just a cause for staying in the race because sometimes it's hard. And I just pray tonight, Lord, that you would bless our study and we ask by the mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, so let's actually, let's jump right in, and as other things occur to me, I will talk about them. Okay, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. Shinar is the area of Babylonia. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So we like immediately jump into a pretty sharp set of contextual ideas here about what's happening to begin this story. Nebuchadnezzar, that's a name that we will be coming across a lot. I'm guessing most of you have heard of the, the term Nebuchadnezzar, right? I hope I'm spelling that correctly, Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody seems to be naming their kids Nebuchadnezzar anymore. I don't know what the deal is. Pretty cool name. Um, interestingly enough, so he's the king of, of Babylon, or Babylonia, technically, because Babylon is a city within that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was, interestingly enough, a, a uh, not a character, but a term used in the recent um, motion science fiction movie, The Matrix. The, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there were, a, there were a ton of interesting biblical references within that movie. Um, and the ship that they used to to get away was called the Nebuchadnezzar, which is kind of interesting. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of, of Babylon, and it says here that he has come and besieged Jerusalem. Now this is actually before um, he destroys Jerusalem. And if you look at your timeline there, it says here within the 70-year Jewish captivity, so right in the middle, it says 605, Daniel and his friends, so he's actually taking captives. And then it says in 597, Ezekiel and 10,000 captives. So that's like another section of people that were taken at a different time. And then in 586, this is when Jerusalem was actually destroyed. So this is preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. This is just the besieging of that. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about why is this happening as we continue on in the study. So they, they take some of the articles from the temple. So they're in Jerusalem. They take some of the articles. They're taking, and Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to take it back to his land, to his gods. He's like, these are the things you guys use to worship here. I'm going to take that for my own purposes. And of course, it's really interesting to read in verse 2 that who is the designer 
of this whole situation. Usually when you think about somebody taking something from Israel or Judah, you're like, man, it's got to be the evil one, right? Or this has got to be the cause of this or that. But look really carefully in verse 2. It says, and the Lord, the Lord is the one who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So the Lord is behind this. And again, we'll, we'll get to that place where we study why it's, why it's that way. For now, let's continue on. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. So now they've besieged the city and they say, not only do we want the articles from the temple, we want the people, specific people that they can use in their kingdom. Verse four, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, great piano players, possessing knowledge. No, I'm just kidding about the piano. Um, possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They are trying to do what's called a brain drain. They're trying to take the most talented, potentially successful people from a nation to, of course, enrich themselves, but also to diminish the nation which they are besieging, right? It's kind of a classic thing within warfare as far as taking captives and which captives do you take. Now, before we continue on and go into verse 5 about what happens to these captives, let's talk a little bit more about why this is all happening. Turn with me to, let's see, here we are, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles... 36. Because here we're really given the context for what's the, the backstory of how all this is coming into play, as well as the reason for why the Lord is the one who is behind this. I'm actually just going to read through the chapter because it's pretty telling on every single account. Chapter 36. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the king of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem. So Egypt is actually involved in this process too. And he imposed on the land a tribute or taxes of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz, his brother Eliakim, king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Now that's the same name that we read about at the beginning of the book of Daniel. He changed his name to Jehoiakim. So the king of Egypt has already come in and put in his own king, changed his name. So Egypt is working on, an, on a kind of a side angle here. This is towards the end of Egypt's prominence within the, the Middle East and North Africa. And then it says, and, and Nico took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. So, so, so the, the Egyptians have taken their own share of people, brain draining and all that kind of stuff as well. Jehoiakim, again, that's the same guy, verse 5, as we read in the book of Daniel, was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil 
in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, now we recognize that name, verse 6, king of Babylon came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. So there's where we get our direct tie-in. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple in at Babylon. Now, as far as what temple it was, there were two main gods that were worshipped. The main god of the Babylonians was Marduk. So it's very likely that Marduk was the focus. Um, there were some others as well. Um, let's see, Ishtar was also one of the goddesses that they, that they worshipped in, in Babylonia. Um, let's see here. Oh, he carried them off to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoiachin was eight years old. Actually, let's, let's uh, oh no, let, let's continue. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months and ten days. That's a really short reign, isn't it? Um, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And at the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem. Basically, this is a really good way to run a government. Um, that's a joke, guys. You know, they're just, you're just pulling from people and that, that guy's bad and we're, this guy's out and you're in and this, this just generally doesn't, does not work. That's why I'm pointing this out. Okay, next time we'll do a little bit of a laugh track and we can all get on the same page together. Ah, uh, great, great, great. I'm sure you will. Yeah, I, I, we could use some sermon laugh tracks, right? With the kind of press the button. <laughs> okay, anyhow. Verse 11, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah is actually a pretty interesting part of, of all this because he is a prophet at the same time. You can see that at the bottom of your page, just below Daniel, Jeremiah is still prophesying at this time. Let's see. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. So the Egyptians are doing whatever they want. Nebuchadnezzar is doing whatever he wants. And is Israel doing right and good in the middle of it, trying to be an example of faith? Not at all. And that's what we're really getting at here. Israel here is not stepping up to the plate at all. They're just in left field doing their own abominable things. They look exactly like every other foreign nation around them. And even though they are under their control, even though they are quote unquote kind of victims of these nations coming in, they are not doing anything right as far as being representatives of the God who made them, right? We've read so many times in scripture about how God looked at the nation of Israel and said, you know, you are the apple of my eye and my, my, I'm focused on, on you raising you as a young child. He would talk about that a lot. And Israel basically has nothing to do with their father. They have said in every possible way, we don't really want you. 
And that's the situation in which this whole book of Daniel kind of begins. Verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 36, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, therefore, verse 17, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, Babylonians, pretty much the same thing. Chaldea is technically a larger area or kind of race of people, and then the Babylonians are the people who live there at this time. Uh, He brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God. This, of course, in verse 19 is referring to the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This would be in 586. They burned down the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Of course, Persia would be the kingdom that takes place just after Babylon. And of all of this is in verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And we'll kind of, we'll stop there and turn back, turn back to Daniel. So the people for 490 years have been told every seven years that they're supposed to observe a Sabbath rest for the land. By this point, almost half a millennia. That's a long time. That's a long, long time. Has, has been filled with them disobeying this rule. Now sometimes we read about like, was God patient with his people? He waited 490 years. Yeah, yeah. God is patient with his people. But he has his limit, of course, as to what that patience is like and whether or not it's really going to do them Good. So now he causes the land to rest for 70 years, which is, if you, if you multiply it out, 490 divided by 7 is 70. So now 70 years of rest for the land. And this is the reason, in addition to the rebellion in general, why these people are being taken to Babylon. Now, stop there for a second. Your life, my life, when stuff happens that we don't like, Things get taken. Things don't work out the way you wish. It's the easiest thing in the world to try to blame anything else, anyone else, but the Lord working something into your life. And it's one of the hardest parts of, I think, walking with the Lord as a Christian is accepting that he has a plan and a path that may go in very different ways than we think. We meet Jesus and we're like, hey, straight and narrow, good, and there's heaven. 
and maybe a crown. And the Lord's like, you met me? Great. Ready? Yep. Oh, and this is going to be a dotted one. Oh, and I'm not going to even show you what's going on here. And then we're going to come back up here. And then, who knows? This is, I mean, just think about your life. Which, which is it actually more like? Mine's like the top one. I, I mean, I know where I'm going, but the path, the path. And so Daniel, 17 years old, where were you when you were 17 years old? Working. Working. <laughs> I'd tell you where I was. Not a very good place as far as like, you know, maturity or um, where my life was headed or purpose. I had stuff that I was doing, but Daniel now is at 17 years old. He's been taken from his homeland, right? Think if you were taken from wherever you grew up and you were put into a new land, you have to adjust to that. And then as we go through and see what kind of person Daniel was in this situation, it makes it all the more remarkable. In addition to him dealing with the issue of the captivity of their nation, the eventual destruction of Jerusalem, and all these other things that are happening, and from this we emerge, from this emerges the character of Daniel, Daniel the man. Let's go back to the book of Daniel Verse five. So we know why they're there. We know that Nebuchadnezzar wants to do a kind of a brain drain with them. And now we're told a little bit more about the specifics. Beginning here, verse five. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them. This is like a college or university kind of situation so that at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. This is his goal, to get them ready to be really quality, top-notch candidates to serve in his, his regime. Now, from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, verse 8, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs, that would be servants who were watching over them, that he might not defile himself. Now, he's, he's in a foreign land. He's 17 years old around that. You know, I'm not entirely sure. He has been brought into this, this training. They're supposed to be learning all these things. They're supposed to be knowing about the customs and all the, the literature and the language. You know, think about like, like if you move to France, right? And they're like, you've got to read these, these French authors, and you've got to study this French art, and you've got to immerse yourself in the culture. That's what, what's what they're doing. They're doing immersive cultural education. And then they're like, and also you need to eat our food. Now, many of us, if we went to France, would not argue with that point. We'd be like, French food, French wine, bring it on. But not Daniel. And this is where we learn the first thing about 
the depth of the character of Daniel. Daniel, obviously, from what we read, is not a a good representative of of what was going on in Israel or Judah at the time as far as what we see about those other kings and what the nation was doing. This is some, somebody who, has, even as a young man, took seriously the teachings that he had been given. And we don't know about his, 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 his parents or his upbringing or any of those details. But we know this, that at that age, he was aware that for him to partake of these foods, partake of the king's delicacies, despite the fact that they might be really good food or really good quality, was something that was against his faith against the dietary laws of the Jews, right? So here he is, he's taking these things quite seriously. And I think, you know, from a practical point, this, this issue of where did Daniel draw the line? He, he didn't draw the line at, you know what, you can't give me a foreign name. No, he accepted the foreign name. He accepted that he didn't draw the line at, I'm not going to read your books. No, okay, I'll read your literature. He drew the line right where the the Lord had drawn the line in the law. These are the things that you are not to partake of, to put inside you. Ideas, you can kind of, you can combat with your mind. You can read an idea and agree with it or not. Food, things you put in your own body, once it's there, it's there. And this is where Daniel draws the line in his experience. And he says he has purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Verse 8, that's one of the most important verses in this first chapter. Because that is also the situation that I think I would encourage all of us to consider as we follow Christ. Before we head into any number of situations, before we head into work, before you go home, before you get into that situation that you're not looking forward to, do we purpose in purpose in our hearts? That means to decide before, before we reach that place, before we reach that situation. Do we purpose in our hearts not to defile ourselves? Something to think over, something to mull over as far as who the character of Daniel is. And again, this is as a young man. For us, all the more so, right? That we need to kind of have this purpose that he did not want to be defiled or go against what he knew were the clear teachings in this instance, the dietary teachings um, of what the Lord had given them in the Old Testament. Now, verse nine. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So obviously Daniel tells this to the person who is watching over him. He doesn't just kind of hide it. He says, look, I, this is, this is against my, my faith. This is something that I, I, I cannot do for, for conscience sake. And the guy responds, wait a second. No, no, I'm responsible for you. If, if, if you make a decision and it harms, ends up harming you or you guys don't look as good as you're supposed to after these, this three-year university training ground, it's me who's on the line. It's me. 
And Daniel was completely aware of that. So he says in verse 11, so Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he agrees to this, and he consents in verse 14. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Daniel says, look, if this is a conviction that's been put on me, and I'm going to carry this out, then let's, let's, let's check it out. Let's, let's see if, if this can not harm the person who's watching over me, because that's, that's not his intent. His, his intent is to say, I'm keeping pure. I'm not asking you to. I will do this. You test me in this. And at the end of 10 days, verse 15, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So what we learn here is a quite simple fact that if you want to look your best, then what you need to do is you need to eat vegetables and drink water. Now think about this. All jokes aside, that does not sound like a fun diet to me. It's possible that vegetables includes like maybe some yams or potatoes, I guess, but vegetables and water. And this is for how long? Three years. Now, he was just tested for 10 days, but they agreed to it, and so he's going to be continuing this. That's quite a sacrifice because every single day, have you ever been in a situation where you decided to go on a diet and like the next day, your friend's like, hey, Popeye's just opened up. And you're like, the last thing I need to be thinking about right now is that delicious Louisiana fried chicken. Even, if I, even as I'm talking now, some of your stomachs are probably grumbling just a little bit, right? Well, <laughs> But then imagine if you had to smell that every single day while you had made your decision. This is, this is not a simple thing. So anyhow, the, the, the main thing though is that vegetables and water are actually not really what make you look good. It's their conviction and them following the Lord, isn't it? They, he said, test me, but who was really being tested? It was the Lord, right? And it's the Lord who made them look this much better and that's much fatter in their flesh. So, verse 16, thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. And as for, the, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature. So he actually increased their, their mental capacity with studying the other things that they were supposed to study in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now that's, let's, un, let's underline that verse right there. Daniel was given a specific kind of gifting because of what? Because of his decision to walk according to God's law, even when it was either inconvenient, uncomfortable, against the kind of cultural norm. And the gifting was a specific thing that in just a moment, we will learn he really needs in order to get this. Do you know that the Lord is still a giver of gifts? 
He is the one who gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he gives them not just like when you think you need them. Sometimes he kind of gives you a gift that you will need six months from now, or he'll give you something that you will need five years from now. You never know when he's going to call to use the gifting that he gives. And I actually wonder with Daniel, when this, when this is said here in verse 17, if Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, is before we get into chapter two, which is all about this issue of visions and dreams, if Daniel actually began to like have dreams himself and began to be like, what? what's going on? I don't, don't remember dealing with this before. The Lord is still a giver of gifts and he's still equipping his people. You know, one of the, one of the best things you can pray for just as you start the day, when you think you have your plan of how it's supposed to go, which, by the way, never works out, at least in my estimation, in my experience, excuse me, is, Lord, equip me for how you know this day is going to work out. Equip me for how you know the day is going to work out. My days always go different when I begin that way. When I stay on the path of, okay, you know where this is going. You know what I need in order to get there. And Daniel was doing that kind of thing. He was purposing in his heart. He was preparing himself. And the Lord was preparing him for the things that he would face. Now, at the end of days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So they're finally at the end of their training. This has been three years of vegetables and water. Broccoli, water, squash, water, potatoes, water, more water, more water. Potentially unfrench fries, Babylonian fries. So at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 19, then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. These were their top four candidates. Their top four. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. Now again, look at your rulers and prophets timeline here. You see at the end of the 70-year Jewish captivity, if you go straight up, you'll see Cyrus, who is part of the Medo-Persian Empire. So Daniel's now going to be involved in both the Babylonian Empire as well as eventually the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, serving in some capacity here for 70 years. He's a 17-year-old taken to a foreign land, and he's going to be put in high places, although he'll be challenged, in ruling and dealing with the affairs of, of what is wise, of what is knowledgeable, what is good, for 70 years. Daniel the man is quite the man. He's making his mark He's chosen to go a certain pathway despite what's going on. He's not let the destruction of his homeland, he's not let the, the eventual besieging of Jerusalem take him off track. He's not let all the usual trappings uh, allure him away from following who his Lord is. He has been taught in some matter very well about who the Lord is. 
and now he begins walking it out. Yeah. As a prophet, do you think Daniel had uh, the Lord had spoken to Daniel and said, uh, "You know, I'll back you up on this." Uh, was it Daniel's idea fully to not eat the food of the king and throw it up to God and say, "Hey, this is what I think you want me to do. Act accordingly." I I really don't know. I mean, you have to be, you'd be reading into the text in order to answer that question, right? But from my perspective, it seems that that Daniel was a person who maybe didn't have to be reminded of the things that he had learned. I often do. <laughs> I think most people do, but there is a conviction within Daniel that set him apart. And, and you can tell even from the treatment that he had from Nebuchadnezzar, as well as the chief of the eunuchs, that they saw something in Daniel too. The fact that he would even entertain the request of a quote-unquote captive showed that he had made some kind of mark on them. And we'll see the continuation of that mark. But it's an interesting question. Let's now continue on to chapter 2. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now, what did we just read about Daniel? That he had been gifted with this issue of dreams. And now, we see what happens in the text. We see the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is having trouble while he sleeps. Are those two coincidences? I think not. God governs in the affairs of men. And I'll put this out there as a practical point. The study of prophecy, um, of which Daniel is a book of of prophecy, um, is very helpful in the life of the Christian because it gives us Assurance, I guess, is the best way to write to write about it or describe it, in the fact that God is present and working things out, and He knows how the future is going to be unfolding. Sometimes we can get lost in the weeds of prophecy, as far as does this mean that, and kind of chasing down every possible outcome of how the our, our days will go, how the end of end times will go, when things will happen, who will be the characters. Sometimes, though, we can get lost in the weeds of that and not focus on the fact that this prophecy is given to us not just for knowledge's sake, but also for character's sake, just as with Daniel. That it should be something that sharpens us in our obedience to God. That when we read about God fulfilling something through the timeline he has made, that that should make a mark on our hearts, not just our minds. That we should be trusting God's plan and wherever we are on that kind of circuitous path of life wherever you are right now you can know that you know that you know that you know that God has a plan for you he has your life worked out he has he knows exactly the days of your life he knows exactly um, what will be happening to you and he knows when it's going to happen You know, I would think one of the interesting um, verses in the New Testament when Jesus is talking about um, the fact that the sparrows, not a sparrow falls except for his knowledge, and he knows all the 
the number of the hairs on our heads or the lack of number of hairs on our heads. Do you, do you not realize, though, about the whole issue with the hair, for example, that the count of the number of hairs in your head is constantly changing? Like, it's not like you have 26,533. Let's write that down. That's a fun number. 26,533. Is that this morning, you probably had 548. And tonight after you leave here, especially if any of you fall asleep and rub your heads against the chairs, that's going to be a 526, maybe a 4. Carry the 1. He knows every detail in that minuscule level. Can we trust a God who knows this much about us? Yes. How much should we trust a God who knows this much about us? So much, right? And prophecy is about that. Prophecy about that for our hearts in addition to our minds. Let's get back to the study. So Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. He's waking up in the middle of the night. Maybe you've had dreams like that as well. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar is losing sleep. He's got some crazy dreams. It's waking him up. He can't get back to sleep. And so he calls the basically the Babylonian version of the psychic hotline, right? Like these are all the guys who who were there to give interesting knowledge because they had some kind of touch with the divine. Has anybody ever tried one of those, by the way? Like this, and I'm not, as Christians, obviously, you should not. <laughs> um, I remember one time we had a, um, we were renting a church facility, and, um, and uh, there was a psychic fair coming to that same place uh, the day before. And when one of the guys uh, spoke up within the church and said, hey, maybe we should go there and, and like, you know, witness to these people, you know, because we're going to be worshiping then that same venue the next day. And the pastor, this guy who trained me up, Pastor Bill, said, nah, they'd already know we were coming. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a classy situation. So they call the psychic hotline of their day magicians, so people who can perform interesting works. You know, this reminds me of the magicians of in, in Egypt, right, with the pharaoh. Astrologers, people who can read signs, like in the, in the, in the sky, like the placement of the stars and celestial bodies. The sorcerers, so those people who do, like, enchantments or maybe call out curses on people. Or, and the Chaldeans. So they came and stood before the king. So they, they gather, and, and we're not told exactly how many, but it's, it's quite a few. Right? There's got to be at least a few representatives from each one of those groups. And it is the king, right? And this is a really important person. So they're probably like wanting to go. And be like, let's, let's, let's prove the astrologers are going to win tonight. You know, maybe the, <clears throat> maybe the uh, enchantment guys would be like, no, we're going to know the interpretation of the dream. They're kind of battling for, for position and authority and all this kind of stuff. So the king says to them, verse 3, and the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now this was the common language of the Babylonians. And actually from this point in scripture, uh, from verse uh, 4, chapter 2, 
until the middle of chapter seven, or until seven, chapter seven, 28, this whole scripture was originally written in Aramaic. So this is interesting because it's, it's, it's the, the Lord is, is using this portion of scripture to, to speak to the people who have taken his people captive, of course he's in control of that, and now he's speaking to them in this particular language in Aramaic. So they speak to the king and they say, oh king, live forever. Now you gotta wonder, right off the bat, the first thing they say, as astrologers and predictors of the future, the first thing they say is, oh king, live forever. Now, anybody who's ever been, been alive for any period of time knows this great statistic. 10 out of 10 people die. <laughs> right? That death is the thing that we all inherit at some point. So it's interesting that they begin with this. Now, we all know that it's, it's an expression, right? It's, it's kind of like what they do with, the, with kings and queens all over the place, right? But it is kind of interesting and somewhat telling that that is the first thing out of their mouths. Sometimes they say liars uh, um, show themselves <laughs> as liars way before they actually commit the lie. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Now this seems pretty, pretty clear and dry cut, right? If we're supposed to interpret your dream, okay, so what is it? Now, have, have any of you tried to, to do this when you've had dreams that are weird? Or maybe you have a friend or a spouse and they've had a weird dream and they'll tell you it and you'll be like, oh, does it mean anything? I mean, dreams can mean stuff. They, they, are, they completely can. But when you tell somebody your dream and they begin to interpret the dream, they're basically functioning um, by just by by taking a stab at it. They're like, well, I don't know, but maybe it's this. Maybe this is there something going on in your life that's happening about this? And they're just they're trying to find connections to things. Like, oh, did something bad happen recently? And well, maybe that's and they're they're just trying to connect lines. But that's all that someone can do if they hear your dream. Notice now what Nebuchadnezzar says in response to this. He says in verse five, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. He's putting them on the proverbial hot seat. He's like, no, no, no. If you guys are who you say you are, then you can tell me what the dream was in addition so the interpretation, this is a very shrewd response. I, in fact, if anybody ever deals with somebody who, who says they're a psychic, be like, well, I had a dream last night. Tell me what it was. Just start, follow, follow Nebuchadnezzar, because in this, he's very clever, very clever indeed. And he tells them if they get it wrong, there's some severe consequences, right? You have to eat tacos for like four years. No, it's worse than that. The ash heap and cut in pieces. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you, are, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Whoa. I bet these guys who were called out of their houses in the middle of the night and they were gonna, they were again angling for like position within the kingdom were like, that's different. Like, I may not go home after this one. So they answered again and said, 
as almost as, as though they ignored it. Let the king tell his servants the dream. Like, oh, you're so funny, Nebu, Nebu, Nebuchad. What was his nickname? Nezer, Nezer. What's up, Z? Z, you're funny. You're funny. No, seriously, tell us, tell us the dream and we'll give his interpretation. That's just funny. And the king answered again in verse eight, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. He's not playing their game. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. So verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. They're putting the onus on him. No, no one's ever asked us this. This is too hard. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And they are somewhat right on that point, minus the plurality issue. So for this reason, verse 12, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So he went through with it. They, they couldn't do it. They were telling him, this isn't the way it works. And he's like, fine, I don't care. Off with your heads, right? So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Daniel and his friends are part of this company somehow of people who have been instructed in wisdom and been instructed in other various things within the Babylonian culture. So now they're coming for Daniel. Then with counsel and wisdom, verse 14, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So they, they hire a specific guy to go out and be the hatchet for the night. And he answered and said to Eric, and so Eric is, is now coming to him, probably to kill him. And, 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 and so that's a pretty interesting situation, isn't it? And he answered and says to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree from the king so urgent? Like, why, why has he decided all of a sudden to just kill all of us? Like, this doesn't make any sense, which is, it's pretty bold. Again, this is a 17-year-old now, maybe 20-year-old, been taught in the ways of, of, of the king, has stuck to his guns, and now, he, middle of the night, he gets woken up. Hey, you guys are going to be uh, killed in the morning. So, just want to let you know. And so, he speaks up. He speaks up. Why, why is this? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So he, he tells Daniel the situation. That there's this dream. And there's the desire of the knowledge of the dream and the interpretation. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time. Wait, wait, read that sentence again. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time. That he might tell the king the interpretation. This is fascinating. Daniel goes to the king directly. I don't know many people who have access to the king, but Daniel somehow has the chutzpah to go and ask the king directly. And he asks him for time, which is interesting also. The king had just talked about this issue of the people purchasing time so that they could kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of dance around the issue. 
And this is exactly what Daniel asked for. It doesn't seem to me like from the, from the get-go, like that's going to be a very successful proposition, but let's read what happens. Then, so he asked the king, and he's obviously given the time, because in verse 7, his, then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So they ask for time, and what do they do with the time? Do they figure out a way to escape? You and I might think that, right? Let's run away. We'll take our vegetables and water with us. We'll see how far we can get across the, <laughs> the, the middle of the earth. No, it says that they took the time that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret. Time. Spent in prayer and seeking specifically mercies. They realized that they were in a heap of potential trouble. They realized that their lives were literally on the line right then. They knew they were captives. They knew the power that this king had. Nebuchadnezzar was a very cruel king. He did whatever he wanted to. But they took the time and they asked the king for time to seek God in prayer. Now, I don't know. We just went through a hurricane. But when you heard what it, when it was coming there's a potential for us to get so wrapped up in all the preparation of the home and all this stuff that sometimes we can just forget within that, and it's a very timely situation, right? The storm's coming. That's kind of like this. This thing's about to happen. Can you sit down in the midst of the storm? Can you just sit in it and ask God for his mercies? until he speaks to you, until he gives you a word. This is the job of Christians, to sit in the middle of our uproar, to, to literally lay down when the storm is just hitting us, until we hear of the mercy of God, until we hear his voice. Because whose voice can still the storm? Whose voice can still you? I know of one voice. I know of one voice that can still me. And it's not my voice. I sometimes try to talk myself into, you ever tried to talk to yourself like as though like you have a little bit of the, even though you have the Holy Spirit in you, like that you can kind of talk yourself into the peace, like I know, I know, I'm okay. But, as good as that could be, but I'm talking about specifically until you, until you hear the Lord speak to you, give you a word from his word, his word. That's different. That's power. That is divine. And that's exactly what they were doing. And then it says in verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. It was revealed to him. They were seeking his mercies. They were seeking an answer. 
They were seeking a word, and a word was given. Guys, this is the God we serve. This is the Father, the Heavenly Father. He's the one who reveals things to you right when you need it. He had given Daniel the gift. Remember? He'd already given Daniel the gift. But now Daniel has to take that and ask him to reveal a secret. He's literally asking God to take a thought out of someone else's head, an exact thing, and replicate it within his. That sounds like a science fiction movie. But God does this all the time. For those who are seeking his ways, seeking his mercies, he's taking all of his own thoughts and putting it, dropping it into your head. Have you ever felt like sometimes when you get a word from the Lord or you read something as though like you're almost like downloading information like a computer would receive like, like a new uh, a flash drive or something and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, there it is. That's the way the Lord works. And it's exactly what he did here with Daniel. And I love Daniel's response here. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. It's one of the most beautiful things about this book is we get to see Daniel's prayers. Like when you get to read about the prayers, the high priestly prayer of Jesus before he is crucified. It's one of the most amazing portions of scripture in the, in the Gospel of John. Here also we get to hear, the literally this is Daniel's voice in Aramaic speaking and this is what he said. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons, and he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. Oh, isn't that amazing? He knows what's in the dark. And light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. He knows it comes not from himself or even the gift that he's been given. And now have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. This beautiful private prayer and praise from a man whose life was on the line. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, so now he returns back to the person who was kind of watching over him, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. I'm sorry, this was, this was, this was the guy who was appointed to kill them. Um, and he went and said thus to him, do not destroy. I don't know if you ever think about, if you ever meet an executioner, maybe the first thing you should say to them is not, don't do what you're supposed to do, man. But that's exactly what he does. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Daniel is sure. Daniel is sure that he has been given the exact revelation. He is not doubting this at all. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord gives you of his word, cherish it as though you're standing upon a mountain as you ruminate upon it as you as you walk according to it treat it like the gem that it is we're not called to be doubting when god has given us an answer in our situation the lord has given you an answer walk it out walk it out that's exactly what daniel did he didn't come saying yeah i i i i i i i had this interesting 
dream? And maybe, so can we perhaps, no, he's like, I have the dream and its interpretation. Let's go to the king. And he tells us to who? The executioner, the guy who's standing there with the giant sword and the, the thing over his, you know, the, this guy, you know, this guy, except a lot more fierce than I could ever look. Um, and he's telling him with confidence, this is what I've been given. So Arioch, verse 25, quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Whoa, what's up with the sudden confidence of Arioch to have confidence in Daniel about this? And then he says, uh, what, what does he say there? Um, oh, I'm sorry, I've just, just lost it. Um, I have found a man. Now he's taking credit himself. Uh, this confidence that Daniel has in the Lord and his revelation. Now Arioch is like, me too. Let me take this off and put the sword down. Me too. Yeah, this guy, I found this guy and he's all getting into it too. So the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Really? You can do this? He probably thought no one could. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, and I just love this answer, the secret which the king has demanded. The wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but, but, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. And as for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king. And that you may know the thoughts of your heart. What a response. Daniel's basically saying to Nebuchadnezzar, look, I am about to tell you this dream. I'm about to tell you this interpretation, but let me tell you something already. I, I know that you were already thinking about these things, that the thing that you dreamed of, you were thinking about them before you dreamed. He's already prophesying. He's already speaking to him about the pretext before the dream he even had. And then he tells him that this dream and the purpose of it is so that he would know about the thoughts of his heart. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is so that you know about what you've been thinking and feeling. Now that is an incredible thing to tell a king. That is an incredible thing to reveal. And Daniel, of course, boldly, but his boldness is not of himself. His boldness is in the revelation that he's received. The same for us. We should have boldness as Christians, not, not rashness, not annoyance, but a quiet confidence in who God is. Our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in him. And it's exactly what Daniel says. So here we go. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. 
while we're going through this, go ahead and get out your second handout. That's the, the handout that has the picture of the statue. Behold, you king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms was of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So there are five pieces to this. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet, notice that word striking on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's quite the dream, is it not? Now, I'm not sure if you guys are, are, are aware of this, but there's many times within the, 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 the biblical references to the Messiah, to Jesus, where Jesus is referred to as a stone, and indeed, the stone that is referred to here is Jesus Christ. Notice that it's a stone that is cut without hands. It comes from a mountain. You can think of the mountain as a father. This is the son. But where we get to an interesting issue within the interpretation of this is the fact that here the stone is crushing something and replacing it and taking over. This, my friends, is not about the coming of the first advent of Christ when Jesus came as a baby. No, this is about the second coming of Christ when he will come is a conquering king. A lot of people miss this within the interpretation, and this is one of the things that is, can be a sticking point. Let's continue on. So he says in verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold. That's got to make Nebuchadnezzar feel pretty good at the beginning. Like, I had a crazy dream, I lost sleep, but... I'm the gold head that sits on top. Not too bad for a revelation from God, but it gets more interesting than that. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And that kingdom is the kingdom of silver, which you'll see on your outline there. That is the Medo-Persians. And as you look back on the other sheet, I'm not, not to make you go back and forth too much, but look at the next giant empire that's on, on the world's horizon after Babylon. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and this is the kingdom of the Greeks. And we see that, of course, with bronze or brass. And of course, you probably know this about um, the Greeks and Alexander the Great, uh, but they had the largest kingdom of all the kingdoms in the ancient world. So that's why this little detail is given to us there, which shall rule over all the earth. 
verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And this fourth kingdom is the kingdom of Rome. The kingdom of Rome. So after Medo-Persia, which we have there on the other sheet, the next thing is Greek, the, the Greeks, mostly under the control of Alexander the Great, although it, it's split into, into four, which we will study in later chapters. Then the Iron Kingdom of the Roman Empire, which of course stood actually until well after the time of Christ, until 476 A.D., now, I'm going to stop there for just a second before we get into 41, because that is a distinct kind of difference and, and, and something that needs a little, just a little bit of time. The, um, the materials that are used in this prophecy are interesting. Gold, silver, bronze, brass, and then iron. They go from the most highly valued to the least valuable, right? If you had two pounds of iron, two pounds of brass, two pounds of silver, two pounds of gold, which would be worth the most? The gold. So this is interesting. Not only does it get less valuable, but as you continue down, the materials also get harder and harder. Their substance, what you can do with them, changes. And there's some interesting things about this that I'll just kind of point out quickly. One is, when God deals with this issue of governance and his perspective on governance, he is a, for all intents and purposes, he is a monarch. He is the one who sits above and is a single king. And the one kingdom that had the most distinct kind of dictatorship or monarch was the Babylonians. So there's something about the purity of the government that is interesting, the gold. When you get to the Medo-Persians, there was a somewhat monarchical oligarchy, but it, um, they had a bunch of nobles also involved. So the, the purity of the style of government was not as similar to that which God desires to rule in. When you get into this situation with the Greeks, of course, the Greek, uh, Greek was a, an aristocracy, and they had, um, you know, they had, of course, their, their rulers, but they also had a number of other people that were involved in the government. And then we get down to Rome, and it's even more kind of watered down or diluted. And Rome, of course, is a, was a democratic imperialism, right? And so it's interesting to look at it from that perspective of that, yes, it was less centralized power, and that actually gave, to a certain extent, kind of hardness to the duration of, of the empires. These empires were generally also, as we went, we'll go down the list, lasting longer and longer. Babylon uh, existed for, let's see how many years. Uh, let's see where did I have this written down. Oh, 66 years. Medo-Persian, about 208. Greek, about 185. And then the Roman Empire, 500 years. So just an interesting thing about the materials and what that kind of means as we read through this. Now, verse 41. This is very interesting. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, 
just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, so they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now we read before that the feet, the feet, iron and clay, this mixture of kind of, if we know that iron is the the basis of the Roman Empire, and clay is kind of the seed of men, and there's this kind of interesting concoction of the two. And we know that there were ten toes. And we know that these toes were destroyed by the stone. We have to ask ourselves then this question. If the second advent of Christ, which is still future for us, we, are, we still pray and ask for the return of Christ, right? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Right? Maybe some of you prayed that today. This here, describing these ten toes, these, and it says, as it says in verse 44, and in these days, in the days of these kings, these, this plurality of kings, this is referring to the time of the end when Jesus does return. Many people talk about this as a kind of a reformed um, uh, reunification of, of Rome in future days. We may even be seeing a portion of this set up now in this, this area we know as Europe. And these 10 kings, these 10 toes that are kind of partly of the Rome and they're kind of partly mixed with clay is most likely describing the eventual kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, I'm going to get into this in much more detail because we're going to be covering these, these ideas and concepts uh, a time and time again as we go through the book of Daniel. But let me just put this out there for you to, to explore. There has not been a time where Christ's kingdom has come and destroyed ten kings or those ten toes. There has not been a time where the church took over the entire world. That has not happened. So this, this cannot be just the first advent of Christ. This has to be referring to the time of the end. And that's why that distinction between 40 and 41 is so important as we go through this and understanding the prophecy of Daniel and what he has been given in this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom in these days. Notice that. He will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. Everything that the Babylonians tried to create, everything that the Medo-Persians tried to do, the Greeks, the Romans, even our contemporary times, he's going to break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And we know this, there is a time coming where there's something called the Millennial Kingdom, the time where Christ literally rules all on the earth. And it shall stand forever. I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that's like, hallelujah, that this is coming. Hallelujah, that this is an answer to the chaos of everyday life. Inasmuch, verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king. 
Now he gets back to addressing Nebuchadnezzar. This great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Can you imagine giving that explanation? And not maybe not all the stuff that I said. <laughs> It'd be pretty cool if he did, but can you imagine giving that to the king of a, of a foreign country in which you are a, a captive? Can you imagine laying that out? Well, let me just give you the rest of world history in advance in a four-paragraph summation. This is amazing. And, and, and remember, Nebuchadnezzar had been thinking these things. What will happen after my time? What will happen to my kingdom? What is this all about? The same questions that you and I ask on a daily basis was the same questions that a ruler of the ancient world was asking about himself. There is no new thing under the sun. There is no new thought about what will happen to me. It's all a replication, a replication, a replication of all the thoughts that have happened before. And now we read of Nebuchadnezzar's response and then we'll close out for the night. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. That's a pretty interesting response for a king. He fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods the Lord of lords, and a revealer of secrets since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. I'll, I'll end with this last interesting note. At the end of verse 48, it says that, that the king made him the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. The chief of the magicians, the chief of the wise men, this in Hebrew is known as Rab, which means king or chief of. And then a few words later we get Hakim. Some others translate this as Rab Magi. Chief of the magicians, chief of the magi. Now this does play somewhat into the story of the birth of Christ, which was how did how did the Magi of the East know this certain information? And of course, there's later stuff in Daniel about when the Christ would come, which we will get to. How did they know? How did they have this information? How was it revealed to them? And some think that this character, this Rab Hakim, this Daniel, who became the chief, began instructing them in the ways of the scripture. We know that Daniel, we, we read about it later, that Daniel had access to the prophecies, for example, of even of Jeremiah. Anyhow, these are just things to kind of ruminate and kind of think about, but it's pretty fascinating to realize the position that Daniel was given, the knowledge that he had, the wisdom, and of course, the revelation that he was given. 
So, thus ends chapter, chapters one and two of the book of Daniel. If you have any questions at the end, I'll ask them. Let's, I'll, 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 try, I'll, I'll try to answer them, excuse me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we want to just replicate this prayer of Daniel, this prayer of praise. We want to say to you, Lord, tonight, blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are yours. And you change the times and the seasons. You remove kings and you raise up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and you give knowledge to those who have understanding. And tonight we want to be those who would say, Lord, would you equip us to be Daniel-like in our time? To be gifted with the things you want us to have for the purposes that you have designed, Lord. We praise you. We, we bless your name. We thank you so much for this book. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.